0: are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Lord, we pray that you would move us by your spirit to witness of you in every opportunity we have and make use of the day. We love you, God, and we thank you that you have spoken. And as we look into your word, we pray that you would change our lives by the very same word and by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. As you're grabbing your seat, feel free to grab your Bible as well and turn it open to Luke 10. We're going to be in Luke 10 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The ushers are handing out Bibles that you can use. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you. And at the very front there's the table of contents. You can look up Luke, and it'll take you right there. And look for the big numbers. We're going to be in Luke 10, chapter 10. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation before where you thought you knew the answer. Uh, there's been a couple of times where I've been like that. There was a, uh, a course I was taking in university, um, and it was a chemistry class. And I thought I knew the answer, and so I shot my hand up, and I'm like, I got this. This is so easy, and I was kind of eager to make sure everyone around me knew that I knew the answer. There's been other times where I'm in a trivia game with my family, and you know I'm a nice dad. I kind of give the easy ones to the little kiddos, and they're answering. But then I just I, I wait for the big doozies and just get the 500 point ones and really really show that I know the answer. And so I'm really eager to answer really quick, but. And it's happened time and time again in my life where when I think I know the answer, I actually don't. And then you actually say it. You're like, I got this. And as you say the answer, and then you're way off. You're totally wrong. And, you know, sometimes there's snickering. Sometimes my kids feel very free at that moment to remind me of how wrong I was. Or just sometimes you just feel so bad. Just like, how could I have been so wrong? Sometimes shocked. How could this be? And we're going to read about a guy who experienced very much that. He thought he knew the answer. He thought he was going to nail and crush this question that was going to be asked him. And he was going to get it. And Jesus actually helps him see that he does not get it. It's a familiar section in scripture. In Luke 10, we'll pick it up there in verse 25. It's the story. Well, let's just read. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, that's Jesus, to test, to the test, stood, sorry, the lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, We should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that's the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy? And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This passage here is familiar to some. It refers to as the Good Samaritan. Sometimes that's an expression in our own culture. And sometimes we don't even know where it comes from. And it comes from the Bible. This is an example. And we're going to be looking at that today. We really kind of pick things up near the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has now set his face toward Jerusalem. He was in the north part of Israel and making his way down to Jerusalem, and he had gone through in chapter nine some Samaritan villages, and chapter 10 he was weaving through now some Jewish villages, making his way to Jerusalem, and a lawyer shows up. In fact, it says the lawyer stood up to Jesus to test him. Now, lawyers in that day would be similar to lawyers in our day. They know the law. But the lawyers in that day, to know the law means that they knew the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law. And so this lawyer, in many ways, is similar to a Pharisee or a scribe, someone who knew the Old Testament very well, but used it for his advantage. He loved finding all the rules and showing how he's kept all the rules, checked all the boxes. He was a good Jewish boy. But he also took the advantage of helping other people see that they haven't kept all the rules like him and all the unchecked boxes that they have left. And so this lawyer is very keen on demonstrating how much he knows the law, how good he has kept the law. And so here he stands up and tests Jesus. Now, just as a word to the wise, that's never a good idea, just to kind of challenge Jesus on how well he knows the word. I mean, he wrote it by his spirit, and so, yet this lawyer is standing up and saying, I'm going to go toe-to-toe with Jesus. And he asks him a question. But you know, like when you get asked a question and the person's not really looking for an answer, they're just looking to show how much they know and how much you don't. That's what's going on here. The lawyer's not interested in Jesus and his answer. He's really kind of using Jesus to set him up so that he can show, not only to Jesus, but to everyone around him, that he's hot stuff, that he knows the law and is doing a really good job of keeping it. So he asks Jesus this question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to have life Eternal. Not just this life, but after this life. Uh, What do I need to do to secure that, to lock that in? What, What do I need to do right now so that if I die, I keep on living after I die? I don't stop living. In fact, you call it eternal life. What do I need to do now to secure that? And it's interesting where Jesus. Goes, You know, a lot of people ask that question. Pretty much every culture and every part of this world, if you're a human being, you eventually get to the point of asking some pretty big questions, and this is one of them. What happens after this life? And how, if there is life after this life, how do I make sure I have it? How do I make sure I get eternal life? And if you don't go to God, and if you don't go to His Word for that answer, well then humans have become quite creative in coming up with their own answers, creating their own systems of belief and world religions to answer some of these big questions. So in the answer to Hinduism, or answering to how do I gain eternal life, Hinduism, for example, would say that if you work really hard, in doing a lot of religious rituals and pujas and prayers, then eventually you'll purge off enough bad karma and be freed from the cycle of reincarnation and enter into samnody. Or similarly with Buddhism, Buddhism also says if you you work very, very hard in walking through this eightfold path of enlightenment, then you will eventually purge off all your bad karma and be freed from the cycle of reincarnation and enter into nirvana. Or, similarly, Islam, also, in an, trying to answer this question, has created a system of work. So that if you work really, really hard in accomplishing the five pillars so that your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then hopefully, maybe, Allah will sweep your bad deeds under the rug and pretend they didn't happen, and maybe He'll have mercy on you, and you'll enter into paradise. Maybe. Maybe. All of these systems are works-based, so you actually never know if you've worked hard enough, if you've done enough. And so there's an underlying fear behind all of these to work harder, work harder, work harder. Even Roman Catholicism has taken the gospel of Jesus Christ and has distorted it into a system of works, Whereas if you attend enough mass and light enough candles and say enough prayer and eat enough communion, you build up enough credit so that eventually you'll be able to go to heaven with God in the end after passing through a long, long time in purgatory just to burn off all the rest of those remaining sins before going into heaven. It's a workspace system. And this is not where Jesus points this lawyer to. I mean, Jesus, I mean, He could have pointed to all sorts of different options. He could have pointed to the Quran. He could have pointed to the Vedas. He could have pointed to the library to choose your own adventure. He could have pointed to a lot of options. But what does he say? What is written in the law? How do you read it? The Bible. He points the lawyer to God's word. Because there's only one true and living God, and he has spoken through his word. It is without error. It is without the ability to fail. There's no way that God's word or promises can ever break or ever fall to the ground. Every one of them is upheld, every one of them is fulfilled. All that God speaks about in his word is true and trustworthy, including the answer to the question of how do I inherit eternal life? And so Jesus asks him, What's in the Bible? How do you read it? Now the lawyer, I mean, you can almost hear him giggle to himself. He is so happy that Jesus has asked him that very question. It's almost like he's been setting this up, just hoping, wishing that Jesus would ask him this very question. Because he wants to answer it. He's like, I'm going to nail this. I'm going to show Jesus and everyone, the crowd who's listening, how much I know. How right I am. And so... He answers Jesus' question. He answers, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He answers the question by really going right to the heart of the Old Testament, right to the heart of the Old Covenant, right to the heart of the law. He goes and shows really what The heart of a true neighbor is by going to Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 and 6, which is known among the Jews as the Shema. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And then this lawyer jumps to Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he brings these two together. And he rightly says at the very heart of the law, at the bottom of every command, is this command to love God with all you've got and to love your neighbor as well. And Jesus actually says in verse 28, he says, you have answered Correctly, that is the heart of a true neighbor, a heart of a true neighbor who loves his neighbor and loves God. You've got it right. You actually answered correctly. Do this and you will live. All you've got to do is love God and love your neighbor perfectly. Perfectly love God and perfectly love your neighbor with every thought, and every motive, every intention of your heart, every word out of your mouth, every action that you ever do, day after day, month after month, year after year, from decade to decade, perfectly love God until your last breath, perfectly loving your neighbor with no mistakes. That's it. Just do that and you will live. You will live forever. And this Jesus is highlighting, really, the second thing for us is the reward of a true neighbor. If you have the heart of a true neighbor that loves God and loves his neighbor perfectly, then you'll be rewarded with that perfect obedience, eternal life. Now, you would think that the lawyer at this point, we would be reading next line in this chapter and verse, the lawyer saying something like, are you kidding me, Jesus? you are just got to be joking. I mean, no one has done this. No one can do this. You would think that he would maybe, maybe be recalling a passage like Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verse 20, which says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's no one righteous. No, not one. You would think that the lawyer would, at this point, have some humility to admit that, but no, he doesn't. In verse 29, it says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor, Jesus? You're already seeing how the lawyer is setting this up. It's very clear in the text. He's seeking to what? Justify himself. To justify means to vindicate or to declare oneself righteous. He wants to show God, he wants to show Jesus, and he wants to make sure everyone around is also eavesdropping in on this, that he is righteous. Righteous enough to earn eternal life. That he has actually met the standard. He has actually hit the bar that he just described of perfect love for God and others and he wants to justify himself. He wants to prove his own righteousness. But you notice his question. You notice how he's doing this. He's doing it by changing the definition of neighbor. He's changing the rules of the game. A friend of mine, he was just visiting last week from Taiwan and he had never heard of the name or the game Grounders and so he and I were both dads. We were over at the park playing with our kids and we're playing Grounders. And if you know that game, there's a lot of little nuances and rules. And of course, my kids didn't uh, tell my friend all the rules and in fact kept changing them any time they were at risk of being it and caught and not winning. And so they kept changing the rules all the time on him. And at the point he finally got to, he was like, is there any more rules that I need to know? That would be really helpful just to kind of bring them all out on the table right now rather than making them up as we go. They just kept changing the rules and because they wanted to win. That's what the lawyer's doing here. He's just changing the rules so that he can win. And he does that by changing the definition of what a neighbor is. The very, the very fact that he asks the question, who is my neighbor, means that he's got this, this nice group over here called neighbors. These are people that he likes, that he, he has a lot in common with, and that they like him. It's really easy to love these people because they love him. And he likes these people. And he calls them neighbors. And then there's this whole other category called non-neighbors. People he doesn't like. People he's not, it doesn't have a lot of common with. They, they don't believe the same things that he does. They don't like the same things that he does. They don't even like him. And so he kind of puts them in this group, in this bucket called non-neighbors. And it doesn't really matter what he thinks about them. He can avoid them. He can neglect them. He can even hate them. It doesn't matter. They're non-neighbors. It's kind of irrelevant. What was really important is the neighbors. How am I treating my neighbors, those I like? And the lawyer had really changed the definition and reduced the boundaries to this nice little circle, this nice little pocket of friends that he's been very, very good to. He's been very righteous with. And so he's really testing Jesus as to whether he had the same definition. Are you playing by the same rules? Because if you're not, you're wrong. And it's interesting how Jesus responds. Jesus, really all throughout his ministry, attacks this false idea of non-neighbor. And it really sets out to begin blowing up this false notion that there's even a category of non-neighbor. It was very prevalent in Jesus' day, in that culture, to put people in these two circles. And so Jesus even addresses that in Matthew five. It says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We, you know, we've all heard this in our culture. Jesus says, you you probably heard this in the market or even growing up around your kitchen table. You've heard it said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is addressing this twisted idea that there's this category of non-neighbor. And it was very prevalent in that culture. And he says, but that's not what God has said. And that's not what I'm saying to you. I'm gonna remind you of what God has actually said. And this isn't something that Jesus is just coming up with new. He's reiterating what has always been. He goes all the way back to the Old Testament, really to the Torah, to the Pentateuch, to those first five books, to the law of God, to remind the Jews, we're way off. You guys are way off. And he reminds them, of passages like Leviticus 19, verse 18, that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of course, the lawyer already knows that passage and has come up with his own definition of neighbor. And Jesus says, no, you can't do that because in Exodus 22, verse 21, it says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Or in Leviticus 19, verse 34, just several verses after Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, God says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You can't create this category of non-neighbor over here because it doesn't matter if you're A native or someone who's born and raised in Brampton, doesn't matter if you have been here your whole life, if your family draws here from multiple generations, or if you just showed up, if you just arrived in our city as a refugee, as a visitor, and maybe you're sojourning and just moving on perhaps to another city in Canada. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You are to treat both equally. In fact, it says both are your neighbor. There's only one group, there's only one circle, so to speak, and it is called neighbor. Jesus is really highlighting the truth that any human being that you happen to meet, you've just met your neighbor. Every human being made in the image of God deserves to be honored and respected. There is inherent dignity if you are human. And, and Jesus is recalling these truths that every Jew should have realized, and even us. That there is actually no, never a reason to segregate over here these non neighbors so I can just kind of have my nice little group over here. He's like, no, there's only one group called neighbor. Every human being you ever lock eyes with, any human being you ever meet, whether on the GO train or the Zoom bus, whether at work or at school, whether in your family, you don't get to choose your siblings, but hey, there's your neighbor, or the person living across the road from you, or on the other side of the duplex or townhouse, or across the hall in the apartment building, you are meeting your neighbor. And Jesus calls us, as he has always called everyone, to love your neighbor. In fact, Jesus goes into great detail and spells out what it would really look like to love your neighbor. He does so in Luke 6. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But you love your enemies and do good and lend and expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. In Luke 6 here, Jesus is spelling out in great detail, really defining what does it mean to love your neighbor. But in Luke 10, he's talking to the lawyer. And I don't know if he knows that lawyers like words and a picture is worth a thousand words, but Jesus chooses to paint a picture, to tell a story of what it's like to actually love to actually be a true neighbor. And so Jesus starts out in verse 30. He says, Well, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, there was a guy, most certainly a a Jewish man, Jesus is saying, in this story, and he's making his way from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you know anything about that road between those two cities, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous for a couple of reasons. One, it's just really hard. I mean, it carves through desert, mountainous, rugged terrain. It's just carving through this this rocky, uh, arid terrain all the way down, and it's dropping about almost 4,000 feet, from 3,000 feet above sea level to 1,000 feet below sea level. And it's, so it's very long, very hot. It's very, you want to make sure you've packed lots of snacks and lots of water. It's very hard. It's a hard road. But it's not only dangerous because of that, because it was also known for its crime. It was actually nicknamed the Bloody Way, because so many people would get bloodied. They would be robbed. They would be beaten. They would be mugged on this road if they were all alone at certain times of the day. And so you want them to be very, very cautious about traveling on this road. And so Jesus, as he's recounting this story, he's telling people, here's this man going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Already they know, uh-oh, he's on that road. He's on that bloody way. This isn't going well. And they're not surprised when they hear that he gets jumped and he gets left half dead in the ditch. But what they're not expecting is the next two people that Jesus brings into the story. He says here in verse 31, now by chance, I love how Jesus says that, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side So here's this priest and a levite Now a priest was a very religious person very similar to like the religious status of a lawyer or a pharisee but the priest I mean he was really religious because he actually was a descendant of Aaron the high priest and so the priests were the ones who actually carried out all those activities and rituals in the temple, of sacrifices and offerings to help people reconcile back to God. And so they were very close to God, so to speak, and did a lot of very religious things. So surely a priest would know how to help, how to love. But he passed by on the other side. And a Levite, a Levite is kind of like a cousin to a priest. They were there to help the priest in carrying out all the different activities in the temple. So they were also very religious. And they were also really esteemed in the culture. And so surely the Levite wouldn't make the same mistake. But we see him pass by on the other side as well. And it's not as though they were, they were walking along and didn't see him or they're reading their scroll and just kind of bumped into him or anything like that. No, the text clearly says they they saw him and then made every effort to go around him. To make sure that they not only didn't help him, but they didn't even touch him. And the text doesn't say why. It could be because the Old Testament says if someone like a priest or a Levite, if they touch someone dead, then they're unclean and can't do their perform their services, or maybe they were afraid that, hey, if this guy got mugged, maybe the thieves are still in the area, I don't want to get mugged, so I'm going to pick up my pace and keep going. We don't know. We don't know why they hardened their heart, but they did, and they didn't love their neighbor, their fellow Jew, and they passed by on the other side. It's so ironic because a priest actually was prescribed by God in the Old Testament to be a health official, really to help those who are ill or sick, to maybe be able to rightly identify what was going on and give some next steps on how to, to, to be healed. That was the role of the priest. And here's this guy, he's half dead and beaten. And the priest doesn't even fulfill his role prescribed in the law. And the Levite, the Levites were also prescribed by God to help the poor and needy, to actually distribute funds and money and resources to the poor. And this Levite sees this poor and needy guy in the ditch, half dead, and neglects to carry out what God has already called him to do and passes by on the other side. I mean, it's so ironic that Jesus brings a a priest and a Levite along and they harden their heart and do not love their neighbor. But this is This is what Jesus is talking about, this kind of hypocrisy, this duplicity that he's highlighting, because I mean, it says that they had also were traveling down that road. They had just come from Jerusalem as well. Doing what? Well, doing what priests and Levites do, They probably were at the temple. Priests and Levites lived in different parts of the country, but they would be assigned to certain times to serve at the temple. And these guys were just coming from the temple, having just served probably. And so they were used to coming just from a situation where they were doing lots of public religious things and saying lots of religious things and doing a lot of right things. But now they were on a road all alone. And you know that saying, actions speak louder than words? we're starting to see really what was in the heart of this priest and this Levite no one's watching they don't have to perform for anyone and now we're really seeing what's kind of in their heart and Jesus has a warning for these kinds of people he even warns us, it's so easy isn't it It's so easy to slide into that hypocrisy, to to kind of be like someone here, but in a different context, in a different group of people, I'm kind of like this. You know, I can be like this at work, but when I'm home, I'm like this. Or when I'm at school, I try to be like that, but when I'm with my family, I'm like this. Or I can be like this when I'm at church or at youth group, but when I'm online, on Facebook or Instagram, I'm like this. And we can so easily kind of juggle these two versions of ourself, these two personas that we're just trying to manufacture and keep juggling. And Jesus can't be mocked. He sees right through it and calls us to come out of that hypocrisy, that duplicity, that living two kinds of ways, being two kinds of people. He wants us to be the same person he wants us to be the same neighbor with everyone. And Jesus actually, he reserves some of the strongest warnings in scriptures to people whose life is entirely characterized by this kind of hypocrisy, by this kind of duplicity. He says that people whose life, life is entirely filled and patterned after this duplicity, not just kind of one-off and they're asking for forgiveness, but this entire life that that displays this kind of hypocrisy, like many of the Pharisees and many of the lawyers of that day. He said, they're like whitewashed tombs, full of dead men's bones in Matthew 23. Or in Mark 7, he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. God will not be mocked. And he he calls everyone out of this duplicitous living. There's many people who go to church and check all the boxes, but their heart is not with God. They're very different people once they walk out those doors. And God is warning us, calling us, "Do not go down this road. You're not fooling anyone, especially me." God sees our heart, and He's calling us to be the same person. And He's calling the lawyer to do the very same. And this is where the story takes an unexpected turn, a shocking turn, really, because Jesus now brings a third person on that road that day. He says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, and he went to him, And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. This is someone totally new on the scene. No one was expecting this. They may have expected, you know, Jesus he he used the example of a priest, now a levite, maybe he's just going to say a common Jewish fellow was walking down the road. Jesus doesn't go that route. He brings along a Samaritan. Now you got to know something about a Samaritan to really feel the weight and the shock of Jesus' story. Samaritans were from Samaria. Now Samaria had been invaded by Assyria several centuries before and Assyria had come in, devastated the land and exiled or took all the Israelites out from the 10 northern tribes of Israel and brought them over to Assyria. But then they also sent a bunch of foreigners into the land. All that was left were the poorest of the poor Jews and then now all these foreigners. And they intermarried and they shared and mixed their religions together. And that's what the Jews in the south, those two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they hated. They hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans were a a living example of what it means to be unfaithful to God and unfaithful to his law. They hated them. They thought they were garbage. They literally, they were half Jewish and half Gentile. And they, it became a derogatory term to call someone a Samaritan, a half-breed. They, would, they, they, they thought they were imposters, pretending to be followers of God. And so the Jews in the south... The true Jews, the Jews that had the temple, that still had Jerusalem, that had God's law, they were the true Jews. They were the ones who were faithful. They were the ones that God loved and smiled on. And so it was only right for the Jews, the true Jews in the south, to hate the Samaritans. In fact, it showed that they really did love God and really did hold to his law if they hated the Samaritans even more. And they did not treat them as neighbors, though they literally were their neighbors. This is what Jesus is highlighting, this idea, this, this racism, that just because someone is different than me has different beliefs, has a different culture, has different clothes or different hairstyles or different skin color or likes different kinds of music, or has a different socioeconomic status as I do, or a different education level as I do, or a different gender than I do, then I'm warranted to hate them because they're different. And if they're different, they must be inferior. And if inferior, then they deserve to be hated. Jesus is highlighting that this is a horrendous sin, an absolute sin that is horrible abominable in God's eyes. God didn't set this up this way, that humans would try to set themselves up above other humans. We're all neighbors. And Jesus is seeking to destroy this prejudice that was so prevalent in his culture and among his own people. And that's so easy for us to slide into as well. Jesus is saying this was never God's design. It doesn't matter these things. It doesn't matter the differences if you have been made in the image of God, then you are a human and you are my neighbor. Jesus trying to help this lawyer realize this and he really gives the Samaritan as an example of how to rightly respond as a true neighbor. Rightly responding as a true neighbor. How does he do this? How does this Samaritan who was hated by the Jews actually prove to be a true neighbor? Well, look at all that he does. I mean, he goes into such incredible detail. The Bible says that he saw him and went to him. He didn't flinch. He didn't hesitate. His compassion moves him to action. And then what does he do? He binds up his wounds like a doctor, using oil and wine, the wine to disinfect and the oil to soothe and to heal. It's like a first aid kit in the first century. And this Samaritan is using it on his sworn enemy, this, this Jew who's half dead in the ditch. And then it says that he set him on his own animal. This Samaritan gets off his animal, goes down, picks this guy up, and puts him on his animal. And you can see him kind of like walking beside, one arm on the fellow, so he doesn't slide off that side or slide on this side. He's holding him, carrying him, giving him rest, bringing the weight off his own feet. And where does he take him? takes him to an inn. An inn, a place of shelter, a refuge out of the hot desert sun and out of the, the, the potential of further hurt and harm with this dangerous road. He getting him off this bloody way. i got to get him out of danger. i got to get him into an inn so he can be healed and restored. And that's what he gives himself to all night. It says that he cared for him like a nurse throughout the night and then gave the innkeeper in the morning two days' wages. which probably would have covered several days of stay in the inn and said, if, if there's any more expenses that this guy incurs, just put it on my tab. I'm coming back. I'll pay it off in full. Just put it on my tab. I mean, he goes to such extent, such detail to love his enemy. I mean, we have a terrible saying in our culture that says the devil's in the details. God is in the details. God is the only one who actually knows how to love someone so comprehensively, so exhaustively. And this Samaritan is really exhibiting that kind of godly love, loving someone in the details, he didn't just walk by the guy and throw him a 50, all the best. No, he, he totally inconvenienced him himself. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid, he wasn't afraid of picking this guy up and getting blood all over his clothes and putting him on his animal and getting blood all over his animal. He didn't fear of getting disease or sickness. He didn't, he didn't fear the cost it would cost him to actually love someone like this. Not only in time, I mean, his whole schedule got blown up, right? It says in the text that he was on a journey. He had a destination in mind. And probably the cash he was carrying was for his own food and lodging. And yet he comes along and sees this man and is moved by compassion. And now uses his own cash to care for him. Love always costs. It always is inconvenient. Sometimes it costs cash. It costs both in this situation with the Samaritan. But that doesn't upset him. He's fine with that. He also doesn't fear losing his reputation. I mean, what happens if mom and dad back home find out or my friends, the boys, what if they find out I actually helped a Jew? I'm going to be mocked and ridiculed. How could you how could you help your enemy like that? What if he got better and then hurt you? He doesn't care. He doesn't love is moving him to love his neighbor he doesn't he doesn't care about his own safety i mean he he's traveling along this road and he comes along this guy who just got jumped chances are the thieves are still in the area and by picking him up he's making himself very vulnerable easy prey for attack but it doesn't matter He's moving. Love is compelling him. There's no option in his heart. He has to love this guy. There's even a a risk of him being right here and another Jew coming down the road. Seeing him, a Samaritan standing over a Jew that just got mugged, probably did it. And he may be accused of the very crime he's trying to heal this man from. That is a real risk. Doesn't matter to him. Doesn't matter, he's moved by love to help his sworn enemy. Because perfect love casts out all fear. I mean, he had no fear of all of these things. He was moved by love. And to love anonymously, it's not like he left his business card or his email address at the end to say, hey, make sure you follow me up, you know. Or he doesn't leave an invoice, he's not interested in being paid back in any way. It's not about vanity. It's not about, I hope a lot of people have seen what I just did here. I, it's not about accolades. There is this anonymous loving of a neighbor that is so detailed, so comprehensive, so true as a neighbor. And Jesus highlights this very fact. This is the kind of neighbor he's talking about. And he uses the example of a Samaritan to expose in this lawyer's heart that he's got it all wrong. There is no category of non-neighbor. They're all your neighbors, even your enemies. And he, and he says this in verse 36 with his own question. Which of these three do you think, lawyer, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among Robbers. You remember the original question. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Who who do I love? How do I love these people over here? And Jesus says, it's not about who you love, it's how you love all your neighbors. And have you loved all your neighbors, lawyer? Have you perfectly loved all your neighbors, including those Samaritan neighbors, Have you perfectly loved them with all of your heart, in every word and action, with every thought and deed, have you loved them perfectly? Because if you have, then you will live. You would think at this point the lawyer would realize, I haven't. I've been working off the wrong rules of the game. I have changed the definitions and I'm way off course. And it's so easy for us to realize that as well. There's sometimes, there, we've been playing by different rules. We've made up our own definitions. And Jesus is reminding us that have we perfectly loved our neighbor? Have we perfectly loved all of our neighbors? You know, sometimes we think of our neighbors as not just the people at work or across the road. That's, that makes sense, those are our neighbors. But sometimes we forget there's neighbors in our family. Like, my spouse is my closest neighbor. And sometimes I'm like, ah, pff, they're just family. No, that's your closest neighbor. Have you been perfectly loving toward your spouse? How about your children? Have you been perfectly loving to your children or to your parents or to that brother and sister, to that aunt and uncle? Jesus is calling us and asking us to really. Search our own heart. Have we been perfect in loving our neighbor? And if we, just like the lawyer, could see that the very person asking him the question is the answer, that he is actually the truest and greatest of all neighbors, the very one talking to the lawyer and standing in front of him is the only person who has been the perfect neighbor. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor, especially his enemies. Jesus is the only one. That's why he came from heaven to this fallen, sinful world full of his enemies. That he would come and live amongst us and that he would die for us. That he didn't come and just be among us to help us who are half dead in our sin, we're the ones, if we're gonna liken ourselves to anyone in this story, it's the guy half dead in the ditch. We're the ones that the scripture says is dead in our sin and trespasses. We're the ones, forget about being a neighbor, we need to be neighbored because we've all failed in being a neighbor. We need to be rescued. We need a, a, a better neighbor to actually come and neighbor us. And this is exactly what Jesus does in coming to us and taking on, doesn't just put us on an animal to carry us. He is the Lamb of God who carries our sins and takes on all of our sorrows. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That not just using oil and wine, but by his own blood would cleanse us and wash us clean of all of our sins. That he, as the Great physician would come and heal our wounds, that him, he would come and put his Holy Spirit inside of us as a deposit, guaranteeing that he's going to come back. He's already purchased, not just a couple of weeks of stay in an inn, but purchased our salvation, purchased our eternal life that we might go to be with him in his home as adopted children forever. Not only has he made that purchase, but he's given us his Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a deposit saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you, I won't leave you as orphans. Jesus is the perfect neighbor, the great and truest of all neighbors. And all of us must see him as such and believe in him and receive his neighboring love. If we are to ever have eternal life, the great question that was asked at the very beginning, how do you inherit eternal life? We've all failed. We must believe in the one who didn't, the one who was the perfect neighbor. It would be ridiculous for us to think that we could save ourselves. It's more accurate to imagine all of us, hundreds of us, on the 410, just dead in our sin, just lying on the freeway. And Jesus coming to us with open arms saying, I have loved you and I've loved you perfectly. I've made every way possible for you to be rescued, to be cleansed, to be healed. Do you want me to save you? Do you want eternal life? And we respond, get away, Jesus. I'm going to do it on my own. I roll over. And try to figure out some new man-made system to heal myself and to work really hard and to get myself saved. It would be ludicrous. Jesus is the one who has accomplished everything we need. And he stands there ready to save. We only have but to look and to live and to trust in this Jesus for our salvation. I can't save you. I got my, I got my own junk. I got my own sin. You can't save yourself. You can't save anyone else. No one, no, we can't even neighbor one another. There is only one name and one neighbor under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ. And if you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and receive his neighboring love, then do you know what happens? You actually get transformed into a neighbor like him. He says this right at the very end, verse 37. You go and do likewise. If you've received Jesus and you have received his love, you're now transformed to, re- to love others. If you've received his forgiveness, you are now able to forgive others. If you've received his kindness, having been once his enemy, you are now able to be kind to your enemies. You know that parent who hurt you, that friend who betrayed you, that person who's unforgivable, unlovable. If you had any idea what he did, if you had any idea what she said, now you're able to go to that person and genuinely love the unlovable because Jesus has loved you and me and we were unlovable. This is the power of the gospel. That if we receive Jesus' neighboring love, he transforms us to become neighbors like him so that we now can go and do likewise. And I want us to really pray and think about how Jesus has loved us in the details. How his, He hasn't missed anything. He didn't skip over or cut a corner. He has loved us exhaustively and completely. And as we think of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be taking in just a moment, I want us to take a moment to think about the love of God and how Jesus has been a perfect neighbor to us. The ushers are gonna come and they're gonna be handing out a tray and inside are two cups. One has juice and one has bread. And they're both pointing to the true neighbor. The bread is pointing to the body of Christ who carried our sins. And the juice is pointing to the blood of Christ that washed away and cleansed and healed us from all of our sins. And these symbols are to remind us of the true neighbor and how we are to neighbor one another, especially in the household of God. And so as the ushers hand out these trays, I encourage you, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and has received his neighboring love, then take a pair of cups and just hold it and think about how Jesus has loved you. And if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, haven't yet received his neighboring love, then I encourage you, just let the tray pass you by and come and talk to myself or anyone you see up here or any of the ushers handing out the trays or the person who brought you. Talk to them, ask them, who is this Jesus? Who is this neighbor who promises salvation and complete forgiveness and eternal life. So let's use this time now to reflect on Jesus' perfect love for us. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.